You are listening to News and Views, the Quint's podcast series where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. And today I am very pleased to be in conversation with senior advocate Saurabh Kirpal. Mr. Kirpal is not just a lawyer but also an author and activist who's been raising the rainbow flag high in the country. As a matter of fact, if you Google his name today, all the headlines would be to the tune of Is Saurabh Kirpal going to be India's first homosexual judge? Without further ado, let's see what Mr. Kirpal has on offer for our audience at the Quint. Congratulations for 15 judgments. Thank you so much, very much, Nishtha. Thanks for having me and giving me an opportunity to speak about the books. Okay, why I wanted you to keep both the books together is to just show the contrast here. You know, this is this is more um, you know uh, about the personality and this is the profession side of the same person right. in a way. What do you? think is more defining for you, your profession or your personality? Well, that's rather like asking a mother or a father as to who their favorite child is, right? And I would say that I am a sum of both my personality, which is my sexuality, identity and my career, right? I use my career to fund my activism and my activism is what brings me joy and allows me to focus on my career. So it's a symbiotic thing. Writing each of these books did not require much effort on my part. Uh, I, these were subjects I dealt with, which I was very familiar with. Right. Um, I was actually uh, Googling your name and uh, I was actually struck by all the headlines uh, about the book and everything. So who is Saurabh Kirpal? This was the standard template of headlines. Um, the advocate who could be India's first gay judge mm. or iterations of the same. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about these headlines? Well, <laughs> look, the headlines are not something I choose. Uh, and I completely believe in the freedom of the press. So people will typecast me in the way they think is most common. Often that would be salacious or interesting or whatever is clickbait. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. So it doesn't really bother me. Of course, the fact that I'm going to be potentially, or maybe never, <laughs> India's first gay judge is a, a fact to be determined and is an important fact about me, not just to me, but to the entire queer community. So really from the idea of public interest, that's why these public uh, headlines exist. But of course, that's not who I am. Oh, that's not all who I am. We can't have a reductionist point of view about anyone's life. Uh, and certainly not mine. There's so many things that give me joy. Uh, so many things who make me what I am. Right. Uh, I believe in the queerness of everything. That makes me love heterogeneity. Absolutely. But do you, do you also feel that when it comes to uh, queer individuals, members of the queer uh, uh, community, they somehow get reduced to their sexuality and nothing beyond that. So mm -hmm. it becomes um, an unmistakable and unslippable sort of epithet that has to be used all the time. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and that's true not just for queer people. It is for anybody who uh, tries to get something out of the mainstream. So for instance, if you're a successful woman, you will always be a successful woman. Uh, you won't simply be another successful person. 
this is how a traditional reportage has been in our country. And this is not going to really change, uh, I think, till we achieve true equality. And so to your question, uh, are people reduced to one single defining characteristic, uh, their queerness? The answer is yes. Uh, is it the best way to be? There, I'm slightly conflicted. Uh, of course, it is not the best way to be for that individual. Mm -hmm. right? So every time I'm called just that gay lawyer, uh, it's frankly a bit disconcerting and even demeaning mm -hmm. because I'm more than that. But from the perspective of a queer person sitting in rural India, a young law student, uh, a person who doesn't have the means that I do, when they Google my name and, and they see that there is, hey, there's a queer person out there right. who is a lawyer, who who's aspiring to high constitutional office, for them it's encouraging, mm -hmm. for them it's hopeful. So, so be it, if I can help someone that way, right. by being reduced to something. Would you be able to narrate an incident like that where you actually became a role model of sorts for somebody who's coming from, from, from a marginalized community, from a marginalized region, you know, mm -hmm. that's not, you know, far away from Delhi or Bombay? Yes. Uh, I'd be surprised, it's uh, almost a daily occurrence. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, for confidentiality purposes, I will not take names. Mm -hmm. But my, uh, often my social media, media profiles are open. And you get panicked messages middle of the night by young men, women, cis, trans, all kinds of people uh, saying that uh, we don't know where our career is headed. Mm. We want to do law, but we are concerned that we will not be able to succeed in an area which is otherwise quite conservative. So there is this fear in people. And they write to me saying, do you think I'll be able to do? What should I do? And to them, I always inevitably reply the same thing, is live your life openly and freely because you have no choice. Right? If not today, if not tomorrow, at some point in the future, you will have to and you have no option but to come out and accept who you are. Uh, so better do it sooner than later. Grapple with your demons now than when it is too late. Uh, but you... Do you feel that there is a, this, this you know, very visual sort of contradiction here is this rainbow flag mm. and there is this black and white, like literally mm. black and white and rainbow. How right. do you bring the two worlds together? You may have been able to do it, uh, right. you know, with, with a certain elan and uh, with certain ease mm. because of your background, because of your privilege. And you have spoken about it, right. you know, quite, quite often. But uh, how easy would that advice be uh, to to sort of put to put into practice by these people who are reaching out to you. Yes, I've spoken of my privilege often enough and I'm not going to repeat that here, as you have said. And it is true, it is not easy for a person without privilege to come out and succeed in a legal practice. But not easy does not mean impossible. Right? There are many kind of barriers that a person can face when uh, doing any job, let alone a job in, in the law. And yes, the law is a conservative profession, but let me also tell you, it is a very liberal profession. After all, the freedoms that the queer individuals have in India today are because of what the courts gave them. Right? So we can't forget that judges are liberal people. Uh, sometimes young people get so caught up in who they are and their own identity and their own understanding that they forget that the place where they're going to work as, as, as lawyers is a place which is otherwise welcoming. If only you had the courage to do so. Right? So I ask people to have courage, I ask people to have faith, and I also ask people to be agents of change. Right? 
So to some extent, I was able to bring about change in the hearts and minds of some people. Uh, it will undoubtedly become easier for people who follow me. The way people ahead of me made it easier for me, right? This is all a process. So you said there is the rainbow queerness and there is the black and white of law. I think it's time that queer individuals try to color the black and white of law with a bit of their personality, right? Uh, this old boys network, and it is an old boys network. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there is any doubt about it. Uh, the time is right to bring about a change. We have statements being made today by the Chief Justice of India, by the senior judges that let's not have an old boys network. And those are fine. People are, like him can, can say, and that's the right thing to say. But the actual change will be brought about by young people who have the courage of conviction and simply live the life that they want to live. So is it going to be easy? I'm sorry, the answer is not, not, not what you want to hear. It's not going to be easy. But do you still have to do it? Most certainly, yes. Right. Thank you for uh, steering the conversation into the, uh, the nitty-gritty of, <laughs> the, of the judicial sort of landscape of the country. About the Chief Justice of India, I mean, the uh, gentleman has a chip on his shoulder already. What do you have to say about that? Um, the um, stuff that uh, the entire country, in a way, is, uh, is expecting uh, CJI Chandrachur to, to sort of, you know, make his mark mm -hmm. by taking certain, uh, you know, certain steps that he has been known for taking. But as CJ, would he be able to do it? And uh, let's see what he's going to do. Will he slip now? How do you assess all of that? Is it putting him in a tight spot? You know, is, is all of this expectation stuff? I think he must be aware of the expectation that is there on his shoulder. But he's also a seasoned judge, uh, extremely intelligent person. So he probably knows what he's setting himself up for. This is not going to be a surprise for, uh, for him. Uh, is he setting himself up for failure? Well, that depends on your perspective and your expectations of him. Mm -hmm. right? If you expect that he will deliver the moon, then I can already tell you that yes, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, because our systems are inherently evolutionary in nature. Right? We do not believe in, we do not subscribe to, our constitution does not permit a revolutionary way of, be, uh, of being. So there will be small changes, there will be incremental changes. I think where the revolution will be might be in a change of direction. Whereas with some of the past chief justices, uh, this evolution has been creeping steadily backwards. So for instance, when we saw the reference of the Sabrimala uh, case yeah. by Chief Justice Gogoi and him saying, well, actually, yes, the rights of women have been affirmed, but let's refer the matter to a seven judge bench, right? Uh, that was a very, very regressive decision in which Justice Nariman and Justice Chandrachut dissented. So now we have possibly and hopefully uh, a series of evolutions and progressions towards the progressive side. Uh, the jury is out. Uh, we judge judges by ultimately what they decide, not by either anticipation of what they will decide or by speeches that they give in seminars. Uh, so let's hope what he can. He will be constrained by the limits of his office. He will be constrained by the limits of his power as given by the constitution and he may be limited by constraints of which we do not know, which we are not aware and that which we cannot discuss. Right. So all the best to him. Right. Uh, but you also feel that um, the surround sound um, 
has kind of increased manifold because of uh, social media, because of you know live tweeting, and almost everybody is now invested, engaged, and uh, uh, particularly when it comes to PILs. Mm -hmm. So um, there is, you know, it's it's as if uh, there is twenty thousand spotlights. Right you know, on, on whoever the judge is. Right. right. Do you think that this kind of public attention is good or bad for judiciary? Yes. See, social media is nothing but a democratization of the media. Mm -hmm. It is removing that interface of the in editor between the judge and the, and the reader mm -hmm. and the consumer of the news. Whether it's a good thing for judges or bad thing for judges, and if I may be allowed to simply skirt your question, is I think slightly irrelevant because that's what the reality today is. Uh, of course, a judge would like not to be examined or, or, or viewed. Uh, so from the perspective of the judge, having 20,000 spotlights is a bad thing. Right? The judge will never want it. From the perspective of the person putting that spotlight, it is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I presume your question about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is, is it good for the institution as a whole? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And there the answer is nuanced. I think some part of the social media is a very quick clickbaity answer of yes, no. No, there is no yes, no answer. It has its ups, it has its downs. The transparency that is brought by live tweeting, the, the awareness of the common citizen as to what is happening in the court is, is, is a very good thing. We need to bring the courts into the lives of the people uh, through a knowledge of what is happening in courts. After all, the courts are deciding about their lives. It is important for the citizen to know how the courts function, what the courts are deciding. So that is certainly the positive thing. The negative aspect of this is undoubtedly the pressure it keeps on the judge. Uh, the judge may feel compelled because there are these eyes upon her or him that you can't have an actual discourse or a dialogue between a lawyer for the fear of her being misreported or misunderstood. So you have to be very careful about these things. A judge must be slightly uh, understanding of the statements uh, she makes in court, saying that let's not make sensational statements because they will be misreported. There must also be a restraint on the part of social media or people making comments. Uh, try not to troll judges. It's not a good thing for anybody in the long run, especially the trolls, because they'll be the first people running to court seeking bail as in when they're persecuted and prosecuted. And then don't say that judges are unfair. So I think the jury is out there. The answer is, I'm so sorry to say this, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, we should not uh, lambast and lampoon this, this middle-of-the-road uh, position mm -hmm. or, um, or strategy, as it mm -hmm. were, because it works very well. And as you uh, just said that, uh, you know, our uh, institution actually encourages incremental, right. um, you know, uh, these, these steps uh, that, that, you take, uh, that you make towards progress and not a revolutionary uh, idea. But do you feel that uh, there have been these uh, instances in the past where the Supreme Court in particular actually revolutionized the society? Well, yes, uh, in the context of the Quaker community, Section 377, which is one uh, book of mine. And in the other, in a series of judgments on finance, uh, the court has revolutionized society. Most importantly, for instance, starting from 1950, right? The very first big judgments that came out shortly after uh, independence, uh, including one on the right to property. Uh, the court upheld the right to property and said that you could not acquire land without paying adequate compensation. And Zamindari Abolition Act was therefore bad. 
and struck it down. Now, that in itself did not revolutionize the country as much as the revolution that the reaction to that judgment brought about. Yeah. Right? The moment the Constituent Assembly said, well, the rights that we thought were, we people should, be ha should have and the rights that the Constitution actually gives them will actually be put in practice and be used by them, apparently came as a great surprise. <laughs> and the moment a judgment comes, which is not uh, something that they like, they proceeded, the Constituent Assembly, B.R. Ambedkar, Pandit Nehru, the very people who we today idolize as people who gave us these rights, did not wait for the first parliament to be constituted, for elections to happen. They went ahead and amended the constitution whole hog and uh, revolutionized how the interaction between the courts, the fundamental rights and the legislature would thereafter be through the enactment of what we now call the ninth schedule, article 31b to the constitution, which basically says that any act, any piece of legislation, central or state, can be completely contrary to fundamental rights and the courts need not examine it as long as parliament or the state legislature puts it in the ninth schedule. And therefore, a vast area of our legislation is immune today from judicial scrutiny. Yeah. And that is a reaction to the revolution brought about by, by the Supreme Court in 1950. Right. Um, fast forward to the new millennium. Mm. <laughs> what would be the, that kind of a landmark uh, judgment, in your opinion? Right. Uh, I think the biggest areas of uh, judicial activism and knowledge have been uh, the areas, I think, of environment mm -hmm. and probably in corruption. Uh, are the two areas, I think, where the court intervenes quite readily. And in two judgments, I think, in one, they got it right. And in one, they got it terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, the one where they got it right was the matter concerning the environment. Uh, you know, there is always a dispute and discussion between the environment on the one hand and the economy on the other. And the courts are supposed to balance the two. And that's all well and good. But the courts don't have always the expertise to balance. So in the famous Goa mining judgment, yeah. and then in mining in, uh, similarly in Bellari, in the coast along Urissa, uh, the court saw what uh, was happening and proceeded to ban mining. Now, that was a revolution in those areas. You know, in a country of 1.3 billion, not every judgment, not every act would be a revolution to all concerned. Right. But these judgments were revolutions for the people who are actually living in those areas. So if you were a miner, if you were a truck operator, uh, if you were a worker in the mine, you'd find that uh, you were left jobless and that, was, that ruined your life. On the other hand, the vast number of people living in those areas, uh, for them, that was a revolution that improved their lives. And the courts have repeatedly intervened in matters of environment. So, for instance, the CNG uh, order, when all of Delhi's fleet was, been, uh, was uh, moved to CNG from diesel, a clean fuel, which for some time improved Delhi's air, uh, air pollution. So, that is one area of the law where courts have brought a revolution. The other where the record is a bit more doubtful, I would say, is corruption. So the example that is often taken is, uh, and uh, one of the biggest headline making corruption numbers was that famous 1,76,000 crores, or the CAG, when he said that uh, there has been a massive loss because telecom licenses uh, have been allotted rather than auctioned. The matter goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court technically does not deal with issues of corruption because the matter is pending in the trial court, but is clearly concerned, and you can make out from a reading of the judgment, that that is the first thing on their mind. 
But the court comes to a conclusion that yes, the CAG was right. These licenses should have been auctioned and not allotted. But after holding that, the court proceeds to cancel all licenses, yeah. right? In the meanwhile, foreign companies have bought these licenses. They are now the owners of it. They had no part to play in the allotment of these licenses. They simply bought them as innocent third parties. And this was a time when the India was undergoing a telecom revolution. Uh, there was cheap data, there was cheap telecom. People had a wide variety of options to choose from. There was competition in the market. But here comes this judgment like a bolt from the blue and just cancels without fear or worry of the consequence its judgment would have. And I think set back India's telecom revolution uh, by well over a decade and we are still feeling the effects of it. Right. You talked about um, you know, this, this CNG um, ruling. We are sitting in Delhi, we are breathing poison. Today I, I check uh, the AQI every morning. Today is 373. Do you think that our courts can, if, if they wanted, you know, just an uh, ideal scenario, let's imagine an ideal scenario, is there anything that the courts do so that we are not forced to breathe poison 24-7 in this city? You know, I honestly believe that in a matter relating to pollution, mm -hmm. uh, while the courts must intervene at certain levels, the kind of intervention we need is not something that the courts can do because this is something that requires a plan uh, to be drawn by experts which will be a 5, 10, 15 year plan. We love simple solutions in mm -hmm. our country. We love the headlines, banning firecrackers, stopping stubble burning. Yeah. The cat can, court can ban, the, cat, the court can prohibit, but the court can't encourage through allotment of resources. So for instance, uh, there is a massive problem of uh, uh, vehicular pollution in Delhi. And the court here said move to CNG, mm -hmm. but we need to increasingly move to electric vehicles. Absolutely. Right? The government of the day does not give adequate subsidies to electric vehicles. And that to me is absolutely uh, surprising as to why that policy is not happening. But the courts can't do it, right? The courts can't start deciding where subsidies should go. Right. So that can only happen by the executive. So the courts should be a peripheral aid in bringing about change, but we can't let the political executive off the hook for a job that is theirs. I think one thing the court can do is tell the executives, tell the politicians that under the relevant acts, it is your responsibility to control pollution and the power that courts traditionally apply for not following a law or their decision is contempt. Yeah. So what they should say is, well, the law requires and the constitution requires that Delhi's AQI should be 150 by such and such date. If it does not become 150, I will hold the chief minister, the uh, relevant uh, ministers in the centre or bureaucrats guilty of contempt and proceed to punish them. Right? Why do you take these nitty gritty decisions about what should happen and how when you have the power of contempt? So please use that power of contempt where it's more productively used than to threaten free speech. That is right. I'm so glad that you that you spoke about it. Um, I want now to to come to uh, something more personal. Uh, do you think that when it comes to freedom of speech and expression, and uh, being in a profession where speech is elemental, you know, it the, nothing happens <laughs> without speech there. Uh, 
do you think, do, have you ever felt censored for upholding certain views, for voicing them? Uh, and you had to control yourself that, okay, I'm not going to talk about it. So you're talking of self-censorship uh, that people do. I must confess, Nishtha, uh, that I've never curtailed myself because I feared a political backlash. Mm -hmm. We all self-censor to some extent because you think that may be a hurtful thing for other people to hear. And this, I must confess, is a problem that I see. Increasing number of people self-censoring, being so worried about something that will never come true. Uh, people are keeping quiet, saying, oh my God, the government is going to come after me and I'll be put in jail. The courts will come after me. They'll hold me guilty of contempt. But when you ask people about instances where this has happened in the past, there aren't any. Right. Aren't any. The Absolutely. emperor has no clothes. This emperor of fear has no clothes. I assure you, contempt is highly unlikely to be used by the, uh, by the, by the courts. And the threat to free speech, other than a few very big ticket names that have mm -hmm. happened, uh, does not happen. The government does not have the wherewithal and maybe not even the intention. Now, why do we always think the government has a bad intention? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that they always do. It's not to say that they don't sometimes. <laughs> But it is not nearly as bad as people make it out to be, mm -hmm. either because they don't want to, or I think more likely because they cannot. They cannot. Right. I, and it also becomes, you know, uh, you know, uh, that I'm being persecuted or I'm being hounded. Yeah. It kind of becomes a calling card of sorts. Yes. Do, do you feel that? Absolutely <laughs> right. And you know, there's a fair psychosis that happens. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Section 66A comes, uh, five uh, people are arrested, two girls about making a, a speech about Thakre. That comes in the media. And suddenly everyone says, oh my God, if those two girls can go to jail, I can too. So 10 million people keep quiet mm -hmm. because two girls have gone to jail. Now, obviously, those two poor girls should never have gone to jail. But do 10 million people really think that all of them are going to be sent to jail? Absolutely we don't not. have enough space in our jail for that. Absolutely right? not. So when you self-censor and you stop talking, you are doing a dereliction as your duty as a citizen. Mm -hmm. You have a right but also responsibility to speak up. And then when you say, oh no, I'm so scared. And family members say, please take down that post because Big Brother is watching. Really, do you think that this government has or any government has that many people who are examining every Facebook post ever put and are only looking to arrest people? That's simply not true. So when there are enough people who are speaking up, who are speaking out, I think that's the surest guarantee of having a free society. We can't rest our freedoms on courts or on people taking matters to court for free speech issues. That responsibility lies with us. Iran is Look, in our face. <laughs> did you see today uh, the football team of Iran uh, did not stand up and sing their national anthem because they were making a very powerful political message. These people are brave because they are known. They will go back. They still did what they thought was right. And because they think that they'll be caught by the, uh, by the thought police? No, that is just laziness on the parts of the people who are not uh, following their hearts. That is just injustice that people are doing, not to themselves, but to the generations that follow. Absolutely. What are we teaching um, everybody that, uh, that is looking up to, to us as elders or you know, um, professional seniors mm. or uh, whatever capacity that we may have any influence on them. Mm. So, um, 
but you know you said you said something very interesting here that uh, this kind of um, you know big brother watching stuff doesn't happen but maybe um, people are also scared that they won't get their due that they would be passed over and uh, they uh, they would perhaps be even penalized professionally mm. if nothing else and uh, you know you are still uh, waiting for a sign off the mm. final sign off right what are your thoughts about about the delay here well uh delay is something that has been plaguing our system for a very very long time it's not something new uh in my instance i believe the delay is obviously because of my sexuality and i think it's something the court should take up and and do something about it one way or the other so delay is a pernicious kind of a bacteria or a termite which is destroying the system from within right so is it I, also weaponized sorry to yeah. i don't think it's weaponized i think it just is mm-hmm. right uh the judicial the, the executive need not weaponize judicial delay judicial delay exists <laughs> you weaponize something and 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 use it but yes there are instances uh, increasingly where the executive has taken certain action which they may not have in matter of say of sedition yeah in the last 5 7 years the cases of sedition have shot up dramatically Absolutely. right and you are worried that if i get arrested then i won't get bail for years together because of the slow judicial process that is a worry but again i come back to the point that that has happened in a few headline cases but that is not likely to happen to everybody and these headline cases have been happening always yes right it's not as though the press has been able to function freely and fairly uh, ever and in in fact in my book uh, in the first chapter when i talked to the first amendment so along with the right to property being taken away uh, one of the most important amendments was on the right to free speech because the punjab high court had struck down the sedition law and said under our constitution you can't have a, a crime of sedition so again these great votaries of free speech pandit nehru ambedkar rushed in the same first amendment a change to article 191a and enabled the law of sedition to survive so this war this tension i wouldn't say war but a tension between a free media and the executive has always happened what has changed today nishta is that while earlier there could be a tussle between media which was also backed by certain corporate conglomerates and had its own money and wherewithal and the government on the other hand since this democratization through social media of the media traditional media the fight is no longer now between a news giant and government in fact to some extent news agencies are co-opted by government the fight is now between individuals and and, and the government and the individuals don't have of course the resources with which that they can fight the government so they feel more vulnerable so because of the changing nature of media as well there is a perception mm-hmm. that there is less free speech ignoring the fact that there is far more free speech because everyone today can speak absolutely so no so the space is actually democratized absolutely yes you don't have to have uh, too many resources at your disposal to to make yourself heard you see all these yes. influencers you oh, see people absolutely. on youtube with millions and millions of followers mm-hmm. saying amazing things and uh, we don't talk about that instead we talk about how the media is misreporting yes. certain things which is only a 
uh, electronic media, which increasingly people don't watch. People don't watch. And I was actually coming to, um, to this particular aspect. So what happens to uh, all the institutions in our country as we grow um, um, into a more digitally dependent country, society? So uh, the content on television, traditional electronic media, mm -hmm. is now reflecting exactly that which is happening in social media. Mm -hmm. So the ruckus you see in social media is very similar to the ruckus in the TV debates you see together mm -hmm. today. No, we don't have learned and erudite discussion of the sort we are having on, on television. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> it's true. You have a panel of 15 <laughs> shouting heads, all speaking at the same time. Mm -hmm. You being completely incapable of understanding what they're saying. There is no nuance. There's depth of all sense. And, but that is exactly what social media is today, right? Uh, and, you know, you can't say, as I said, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. This is reality. Like collegium, it's a reality. You have to deal with it. <laughs> yes, the, and that's absolutely right. You know, I am one of those people <laughs> who believe the collegium is wrong. Mm -hmm. There should not be a collegium system. That there must be the NJAC had been brought about by uh, parliament through amendment. It was a good thing. Mm -hmm. It should have been given an opportunity to function. Instead, the court struck it down. If you say that there is no political interference in the appointment of judges, uh, I say in Latin, res ipsa loquitur, <laughs> which is the thing speaks for itself, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, there clearly is. So why is the collegium system any good? So I'm, I'm completely anti the collegium system. It's, uh, it's completely everything that one stands for in terms of transparency. When you uh, said that your, your, your sexuality become, uh, becomes a becomes a reason why your uh, file is not, hmm. you know, uh, moving up. There is, there is the other side. Kripya, Kripya Pratiksha Kijiye. But uh, a lot of people uh, can, can turn around and say that you came because you were Chief Justice. That's an absolutely valid criticism and that's true. We see a very large number of people who uh, have become judges because they have a certain progeny. Now to that, I'll say one thing. It is also by nature a self-selecting profession. So many lawyers become lawyers because their family member were lawyers and judges. So the pool of people you're choosing from mm -hmm. is people whose family are from the legal fraternity, mm -hmm. right? So for number of first generation lawyers is now quite high, uh, increasingly. But 25, 30 years ago, when I joined the profession, mm -hmm. right? you must understand I'm being asked today, but it will relate back to my life uh, of 25, 30 years ago. The vast number of lawyers who joined the legal fraternity were children of judges and lawyers because that's how things work. Right. right. Uh, the law schools had not come up, sprung up to the extent they had. Uh, liberalization had not happened by then. Right. Uh, people think it's 1991 has always been the case. No, I went to university in 89 mm -hmm. uh, in a country which is very socialistic. There was no money. Uh, so, so that's one reason. Second, it is, uh, I have spoken about this often, that of course I'm a product of my privilege, right? I'm not going to start disowning my parents. There's of nothing I can not. do about it. Yeah. <laughs> but what I can do is acknowledge the fact mm -hmm. that I'm a recipient of privilege, not only because uh, my father was a judge and therefore the doors opened for me. My father was an upper caste man. That mm -hmm. by itself opened the door for, for me. My father was wealthy and therefore that opened doors for me. So I had a whole large number of... Uh, good things going for me. Uh, it should be neither necessary nor sufficient. So it was never sufficient, but it was necessary. Hopefully, today, things have changed 
and it will not be necessary. And uh, yes, I hope that some first generation queer lawyer, I don't know whether I'll be a judge or not, right? It's quite possible it may not happen. So if I, it doesn't happen, are you going to cry or are you going to what? What would you feel bad, very bad or not bad at all? Uh, <laughs> well, personally speaking, mm -hmm. I think I would be a bit relieved uh, because I've seen the life of a judge. Oh, yes. Not just uh, because of my personal situation, but even today, the judges, the pay is bad. The work is hard. The life is tough. You are cloistered. You can't meet people. You're supposed to be aloof from society, yet be constantly criticized. It's not a great thing. People become judges increasingly because of uh, idea of public service, right? So if that be the case, a person who doesn't become a judge, hey, I'm a senior advocate in the, in the courts today. I'm doing extremely well. Uh, I'm earning lots of money. I have my freedom. So for me personally, uh, it may not be a bad thing. But I would feel bad uh, because I'm not, I'm doing this for public service. And if I, with all my privilege, yes. can't become a high court judge, I really wonder how many more years we will have to wait before someone else from who the first generation trans Dalit will become a judge. You know, that's sad. This government has actually, um, and this is going to be my, my last uh, question. So they, they, they've been accused of uh, indulging in tokenism, in making these grand gestures, okay, the, um, you know, they, the party gave India the first um, uh, tribal president. president. And, uh, you know, all, all of these, these tiny things, headline mm. management, as some people say. Why aren't you that, that, that headline case then? Maybe they are, uh, <laughs> that it's okay to be a tribal woman president. But uh, to be a gay judge is a step too far. Maybe for some people in power. Uh, you know, you think everyone has the same mentality as you and me, or maybe a large number of your audience who are young. Not everyone sitting has that same view. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a very large number of uh, people of a certain age for whom even accepting the decriminalization of homosexuality, the reading down of 377 was a big deal. So the government, for instance, in the Navte Johar judgment, didn't give an affidavit saying, yes, yes, India has changed, the world has changed. Let us not send gay people to jail for their life yeah. for having sex in the privacy of their bedroom, right? <laughs> Even something as low-hanging fruit as that, yeah. they did not accept. They said, mm -hmm. all right, we leave it to the courts and their wisdom. Well, the courts in their wisdom are bound to decide in any case. So there is a mindset in, in uh, I think, government. I don't know whether it's polit political or bureau bureaucratic or it is a mix of the two. The fact is that is the mindset mm -hmm. and uh, we shall have to wait, I think. Look, if they're not making me because I'm an inconvenient uh, person of alternative sexuality, then I hope to God they find someone who is of an alternative sexuality who is amenable to them. Mm -hmm. Please, by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, I don't see many candidates. But I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find them. Right. You know, you talked about that not everybody is of uh, uh, the opinion that you and I are. You know, they're not people like us everywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. It just appears that the kind of, um, you know, violence that has been unleashed against uh, queer communities in many other countries, mm -hmm. even uh, first world progressive countries where uh, mm -hmm. 
two days ago, the shootout, Colorado saw a shooting outside a gay club. Now, that is something that, fortunately, we haven't seen in this country. And I come from, from, a, from a rural uh, kind of uh, region, and people there are a lot more accepting of uh, others who have alternate sexualities. A man who dresses up like a woman, yes, ridicule him or you know, make fun of him, but nobody's gonna slap him or kick him or you know, uh, smash his uh, head just because he's dressing up as a woman. I am afraid I'll have to disagree with you there, mm -hmm. Nishta. Mm -hmm. um, and that is maybe from, because crimes against queer people are terribly, terribly underreported. The way mm -hmm. domestic violence, for instance, is terribly, terribly right. underreported. So are we going to see, say that because it's not reported, it does not happen? The fact of the matter is that violence against queer people, particularly the trans community mm -hmm. who indulge in sex work, is very real and very damaging and very constant. Uh, so, for instance, in the matter that we did, Navte Johar, as well as in the earlier Kaushal case before the Supreme yeah. Court, we had filed many affidavits showing the kind of violence that the trans community had faced. Uh, there was an ex example given of uh, a trans woman who was raped by a group of hooligans, yes. went to the police to complain about that and was tied up and raped further in the police station. Right? So, and that only happened because she was trans. Uh, and these are constant. So there is this constant uh, violence that queer people face. Uh, and it's just not talked about. And there is a conspiracy of silence about this. Mm -hmm. So I think gay men, if there's to be a hierarchy, a caste system of sexuality, gay men probably because their men have attendant privileges of being men, mm -hmm. uh, don't face as much violence as the lowest, which is the trans community. There are intersectionalities as well, right, mm -hmm. within the queer community. Uh, it's, it is as rainbow as, as anything else. Right. So if you are maybe a, a Muslim uh, person of alternative sexuality, maybe you will face far more resistance Absolutely. than a person from another religion. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a woman, even more so. Uh, but ultimately, I think there is violence, either physical, mm -hmm. but certainly also emotional. Right. Thank you so much for this conversation. And that was this episode of News and Views with Senior Advocate Saurabh Kirpal. Follow us on Instagram at The Quint and tell us what you want us to talk about next week. And check out our website, thequint.com, for more groundbreaking reports and videos. This was Nishtha Gautam, and I'll see you in the next one. News and Views is a Quint original podcast, executive produced by Shelly Valia and Ritu Kapoor. This episode was hosted by Nishtha Gautam, produced by Pratik Liddu and edited by Anjali Palu. With theme music from BMG and a special thanks to our guest, Saurabh Kirpal. You were listening to The Quinn's Podcast.